don't you have a wedding to go to in Colorado Springs this weekend? And I said, yeah, dad, but my friend knows how sick you are. He'll totally understand. I'll be there later tonight. Another pregnant pause. Then he asked me, did you give me your word? And I knew I was in for it. And I said, yes, Bobby, I did. He goes, well, then you have to be there. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Oprah Winfrey, where there is no struggle, there is no strength. Our guest today, Bobby Herrera, understands this better than most. He's the co-founder and president of Populous Group, an organization that helps business, businesses manage non-permanent employees. He's a former Army veteran, a top-rated keynote speaker, and the author of the amazing book, The Gift of Struggle. And Patrick Lencioni called him the best CEO you've never heard of. So, Bobby, welcome. Uh, excited to finally have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this. You did great work, Bob. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I uh, like your name. So, you know, that's why, that's why I had you. <laughs> So look, I, origin stories are, are important. And uh, I think, you know, having read your book, and I know, I know it's very relevant to your story. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the, the beginning and your upbringing and sort of just where you, where you came from. Yeah, I was a student of struggle from the beginning. Uh, you know, I'm one of 13 kids. Uh, I'm number 11. Yeah, I 11, grew up in wow. a really small town in southeastern New Mexico. Uh, the you know, population sign as you drive into town says 900, but I think that was counting half the cattle. So you guys had good market share then. Yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had pretty good family dominance in the, in the town. And, uh, you know, I was the first one born in the U S I didn't speak a lick of English until I, uh, was almost seven. And, you know, my parents immigrated from Mexico in the mid sixties. Uh, my dad was a bracero from Mexico, which was, what they called a temporary worker that came over and did agricultural work in the U.S. That program started originally in the World War era. And, you know, I raised my hand when I was 18 and one of the best choices I ever made and just been building on a story I'm trying to narrate to help others take control of theirs since then. You know, you were likely to be a comedian being 11th out of 13. I, I know Adam <laughs> Grant did some study that like world famous comedians averaged birth order of like six or seven, I think. And, and it's clear they need to stand out <laughs> in the pack. So that's how they hone their, their comedy skills. Yeah, I was, uh, I definitely got the mischievous gene that most comedians get. I don't know if I got the, the wit and the humor on the spot, but you know, being number 11, I thought I was in the food chain to try to figure out something that my parents hadn't seen before. And, and I think maybe that's where I started to hone my entrepreneurial skills because you had to be pretty creative if you were number 11 and trying to figure something out that your parents hadn't seen yet. Right. You had to be very creative to probably get food uh, <laughs> that's at, the, it. at the dinner table too. So I know you said, so joining the armed forces really fulfilled a dream for your father. So did he articulate that to you? Did you know it? And I know you have a great story sort of about when that happened. I'd love if you could share it. Yeah, I, I tell a more in-depth version in the book, but, you know, that was always one of my dad's dreams. You know, the backstory was, you know, he had a very modest upbringing, to say the least. He um, you know, was born into intergenerational poverty. 
all he ever wanted to do was to break the cycle so that he could create a better story for me and my brothers and sisters. And one of his earliest childhood dreams was to someday join the military, you know, in Mexico at the time. And as he came of age, it was halted suddenly through family hardship and he wasn't able to fulfill that dream. And as I was growing up, my dad was a magnificent storyteller and he told us stories about you know, his upbringing and his journey all the time. And he, they were always packed with lessons and, you know, I was no different than any other kid, probably like mine. It's like, Oh dad, another story. And he would uh, often tell me his story about wanting to join the military, but I could always sense there was a different tone to that one, Bob. Hmm. Like there was a hole in his heart per se. And it just somehow had a pull for me. And as I started becoming of age in my later teenage years, I'd seen some of my older brothers and sisters really struggle to try to go to college and figure that out. And most of them didn't make it through. And I saw it one as a ticket to help me earn the money that I didn't have to get through school. But more importantly than that, it was something that I felt I could do for my dad. And, you know, the backstory for me was, Hey, we all drink from a well, we didn't dig. And he made so many sacrifices for me. And, you know, the day I, I joined, I finally came back and I, I told him I was completing his dream. And I tell a more in-depth story about that in the book, but it was, it was a real special moment for both of us. The day that I told him that was uh, one of the first times in my life that I'd ever seen my dad cry. And did you think for him that he saw it as a way out or he saw it as an achievement or, or was it, was it both like, did education come with that or how, how did, was his view of it different than your view of it? Yeah. I mean, his view of it, uh, it was more of an and versus an or. I mean, he, he saw it as a way to advance his story. And my dad, he always had this sense to serve. And he obviously had that mentality for all of us growing up. But in many ways, that was the only thing that he saw to get him out of the situation that, we, that he was in. Right. And, you know, as he you know, was growing up, that Bracero program that I referenced earlier, which was a program that started in the early World War times, had started picking up momentum. And, you know, he'd had a family hardship. One of his brothers committed suicide. He wasn't able to go. And, you know, he had to stay back and support the family. But then he eventually became a Bracero and he would come over to the U.S. and work while the family would stay back. And, you know, that's an interesting backstory in itself. But, he always saw it as a way to advance the family narrative and somehow create a better one for his kids. So you, you used it as a platform and you transitioned from military to business. And, you know, I'm sure there's some things that transitioned well for you and that you took from, and there were some challenges. So what, what, what did that transition look like? And what, what did you do first? Well, you know, the military is no different than anything else. Like, you know, life's a balance sheet, right? There's yeah. <laughs> some things you really agree with other things. You're like, yeah, there's gotta be a better way. And the military is no different, but the, the lessons that I took forward from that experience are invaluable. And I've applied many of them to, you know, my entrepreneurial journey and my personal journey. But after the military is when I went to school, uh, I got my degree and I started my professional journey and you know, my professional journey was, you know, that was about after college, I had about a 10 year 
experience with a couple of organizations that gave me more responsibility than I was ready for. And I finally took the leap in the early 30s to start my company. And, you know, you know firsthand the pit in your stomach that that takes. So yeah, <laughs> had some interesting chapters prior to, to starting the entrepreneurial journey, Bob, but at the, at the heart of every one of those, a lot of the lessons that I learned transitioning into my professional career from the military were invaluable. And I think the two, the two most important ones were I developed a rigor and a discipline that there's no way I would have had, had I not had that experience. Like I know for a fact, there's no way I would have developed that on my own. So you, you work for other people for a while. I've found that people who go into entrepreneurship, then become focused on leadership. They have some real, like, I want to be this guy and I don't want to be <laughs> that, that guy. <laughs> I use guy in generic terms. Um, so did you have some of those things? Like, you know, here, here's the, uh, some people it was actually all negative and that drove them to their, their own leadership. What were you trying to uh, emulate and, and w- what part of your entrepreneurship and, and leadership journey was like, I'm going to do this differently than, than it was done for me? Yeah, great question, Bob. I would say I had both. <laughs> I had some great role models who I wanted to be a 2.0 version of. Yeah. And then I had some exceptional reverse role models <laughs> that I would often say to myself, when I have the opportunity to do it my way, I'm going to remember how I feel with this experience. And I think over time, wisdom allows us to zoom out and say, yeah, like I believe most people, if they knew a better way, would do it. Yeah. And I have a different perspective on it now than I did then. You know, I think often my naive uh, younger self would make a lot of assumptions. Uh, make, I would make assumptions about their intent. Where now I know that, that that wasn't the case. They just hadn't been coached and developed the way that uh, I see now is so important for leadership. Uh, but I didn't recognize that then. And my perspectives changed a little bit, but I, I did have a lot of reverse role models that help guide a lot of the choices that I make now, specifically in how I've molded the culture of my company to give my climbers, which is what I call my employees, a, a voice. I often felt that I, I wasn't heard. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I want to come back to the climber thing. It's something I want to talk to you about. So uh, th- that was one of the bigger themes, though, not not being heard. Yeah, you know, I think at our core, we all want a voice. You know, we, you and I talk about our kids every every time we get an opportunity to connect, yeah. and you know, we come out of the womb not wanting to be told what to do. And as I reflect back on my professional experience, one one of the things that that didn't connect with me when I was in the military was the command and control, the hierarchical, you know, my way or the highway. You know, being number eleven. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't smart enough yeah. not to speak up, <laughs> and that got me in a lot of trouble growing up. You know, it served me well once I started my professional entrepreneurial journey, but then not so much. I knew the reason why it was so important in the military, but I didn't like it. The military has, by the way, since really moved away it has. <laughs> from, yeah. from command and control, which is, I actually think it's funny. I think businesses are running this kind of 30-year-old leadership playbook that came out of the command and control that not even, if you've listened to... Um, why am I blanking on his name? I was just on a call, called him last week. I'm a crystal. Uh, uh-huh. And people yeah. talk about what they're doing. I mean, it's really not the same command and control that they used to have. Yeah, it's not. It's definitely evolved. And that's a significant credit to the 
current generation of military leaders. And, you know, it wasn't like that when I served yet. I could sense a lot of those alpha myths that I think you and I would agree still exist in many facets of business now. And it was never something that I agreed with. I was like, hey, the people that we lead have 99% of the information. Yeah. Shouldn't they have the majority of the voice? Like our direction, our, our responsibility is to direct traffic. So that was kind of at the essence of it for me. I'm going to butcher this quote. I think it's actually McChrystal that said it, but he said something around I thought was great, which is, you know, if you get there and, and the situation is different, don't execute the command I gave you, execute the command I should have given you or something like that, which I think is, I think, yeah, even the military is looking towards a lot more empowerment. Like if the situation changes, don't just do what I told you because I told you to do it. Correct. Yeah. I mean, things change so fast and boy, is that relevant now? Yeah. We have to create that safety for our people to be able to say, okay, that was then, this is now based on what I know. And if you empower them to do the right thing uh, versus trying to please you to be right, then I think you have a, a great potential to build something special. So tell me about, um, I'm not actually sure. Now I'm, now I'm forgetting whether it was with it in this business or a different business, but you got yourself into some business who with some partners who you didn't share values. Was that, was that the start of this business or was that the previous one? No, it was the start of the populist group story. All right. So let's start there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had this, raging invisible force inside of me, this, you know, very purpose-driven mission that I wanted to fulfill, you know, a, a kind act changed my life when I was 17, Bob, I tell that story in the book. And so I had this really deep embedded purpose and this sense of the type of organization that I wanted to build. Well, when I finally made the leap, I didn't put enough emphasis in the initial discussions with the two gentlemen who remain great friends with me to this day, I didn't put enough emphasis in those discussions, those deep conversations about, Hey, why are we doing this? And how do we want this organization to feel? And in a sense, I married the wrong person in business per se. Yeah. We got along really well. There was a lot of, you know, chemistry in terms of us complimenting one another and the acumen type gifts that we had to bring to the partnership. But once we started building it, those other invisible, more important, intangible forces, you know, like the trust that you have to build in a relationship and the values alignment and so forth, they were all out of whack and everybody could see it because there was always a really dark tension around us in the beginning. And that was a real painful uh, start to the business. And that's why, you know, I often call the first five years the most fun I never want to have again. It was painful. This is a good litmus test for people. How, how long was it between the time that you knew that and that you really did anything about it? I think a few months in, I was already saying to myself, uh-oh, yeah. this is really going to suck. <laughs> and I was having those conversations with with my wife and really trying to you know put my finger on it and i had very open conversations with you know those two fine gentlemen yet I, they had different reasons and i was really i had already made the mistake we were all in we had already done everything we needed to to bootstrap it and in a sense 
I, I, I didn't have an exit. And I was like, well, hey, let's play this out. Let's see if, let's see if we can, you know, make this work. And in the end, it didn't. Uh, we were all finally in agreement that, hey, look, we're not going to get out what God didn't put in here for us. And let's try to exit this thing amicably. Unfortunately, we did, but it wasn't before we all experienced a lot of pain and tension in our own personal life as a result. So how, how did, how did you, maybe it came before this or after this, but how did you develop an understanding of your own core values? And then when you had the chance to sort of take over the company, kind of develop those for the company? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I tell a story in the, in the book about, uh, I call it the road trip. And you know, when my wife and I first decided to take this leap, Bob, we were living in California. And the first step for me was we were going to have to relocate to Detroit, Michigan. And that was a feat myself, getting my wife to leave sunny California and go to Detroit. And we're on this long road trip. And you can imagine we crossed every T, dotted every I, heading into this next chapter for ourselves. And we were about 100 miles away from Detroit. And she asked me, you know, my wife's a worrier. I'm not. And she asked me, you know, hey, honey, is this going to work out? And I, I could sense a concern in her voice. And you know, we had talked about it a thousand times. And so I said, hey, I believe in my heart that it is. Uh, then she asked me the next question, which is the easiest question she ever asked me, Bob. She said, are you scared? And I said, I'm terrified. But then I started describing to her, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work out, but I, you know, but I do want to build, I want to build a kind of organization that feels like they're part of something bigger than themselves, where people feel like they're worthy to be themselves, where we always value trust above anything else. You know, like my brothers in arms in the military and I, where we always have one another six. And I started describing to her all these things, how I wanted this community that I envisioned to feel. And then she asked me, well, how are you going to do that? I was like, I have no idea. I'll find a way. And in a sense, I was describing to her the culture that I wanted to build for this organization. But I didn't know how at the time. I didn't know how I was going to bring it to life. I didn't know some of the bumps that lied ahead for, you know, for myself with these you know, two partners that I had. And I, I share that story because I believe at our core, every leader that makes the entrepreneurial leap, like they have a vivid imagination of the type of organization they want to build, how they want it to feel, the purpose and why they want to do it. Like I believe that exists inside the hearts of most entrepreneurs, but in the beginning, we don't know how to bring that out. And I, I went through that pretty significant struggle in the beginning, Bob, and finally through some good mentors figured out how to start shaping it and intentionally building those boundaries that I thought were important for us to follow. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, 
available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. When you came up with the company core values, were you already clear on your core values, personal core values, or did those processes intertwine? Because I, I know for me, and I find for a lot of leaders, it's hard to be clear about what you want for the company if, if, mm-hmm. if you haven't figured out a way to self-actualize or articulate you know, your personal leadership values. I would say that I was clear in my heart, but not in my communication and yeah. how I should articulate those. And that was a big struggle for me. You know, how, how do I articulate these things that I feel in a manner that those who are choosing to be in this with me can follow and, and help me build? And, you know, I talk about you know, in, in the gift of struggle, I talk about the mistake that I made. You know, I had that, you know, that kind act that uh, I share that changed my life. Like that was raging like a like an inferno inside of me. And you know, it's the bus story. And I'd never shared that story. Like I didn't share that story until 10 years in. Hmm. And that was a big mistake. So they just saw this intense entrepreneur and I was a human to them. And I was just someone else trying to build a company. And I know the narrative they said is like, hey, he wants to build it to make an insane uh, amount of money. Yeah, he's going to take good care of me. But they didn't know there was a bigger, deeper meaning behind it. And I think that goes in line with the culture. I wasn't guiding them. That's really all a culture is and a code is, hey, how are we expected to behave here? How are we expected to to show up every day in a manner that keeps us all safe and aligned. I just couldn't really articulate it very well. And, and was it the vulnerability aspect or you just weren't, it, it hadn't actually become clear for you in a way that you could share it with others? Yeah, it was both. I was scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> Imposter syndrome that you'd be found exactly. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, I was scared to death uh, to share the bus story with uh, my community and you know, the narrative that I told was, hey, they don't need to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Uh, it doesn't matter to them. And, you know, what if I fall on my face? Then, you know, so uh, I would talk myself out of it. Uh, 
And the other aspects of it for me, the challenge was, all right, how do I articulate this place that I imagine in a manner that gives him the clarity that we all need so that we can do it together the same way without compromising the individual style. So I think it's, you know, it's a learning process that we all go through as leaders. How do we build a clearly defined culture code that others can follow and that they can clearly see that, Hey, I want to be a part of this or I don't. Cause right. you know, your, your culture should repel some people. Absolutely. It appeals, <laughs> yeah. It appeals to everyone. You'll mean nothing to no one. I, exactly. I yeah. Yeah. And, and we've been fortunate to where it will be 18 on September 9th. And, uh, we've been very fortunate that I'd say the last nine years we've been incredibly intentional and it's, it's made all the difference in the world. Yeah. I like to say that if, if people join our company, I think we're fairly consistent with what we think, do, and say. And I think that's mm -hmm. important. It doesn't, it's not for everyone. You know, what I hope is that someone comes in and they go, oh, like I just, this is the wrong team for me. Like I, I really wanted a city school and I picked a country school or I'm a, I'm a running back and this is a passing team. I think that's okay. Right. Versus, oh, they said one thing and, and do another. And I, and I do, I think some of this, sometimes this is on the candidate because I think they see a company as a good company or whatever, and they, they may bend themselves a little bit to what they think that people want to hear about alignment uh -huh. to the values rather than they might say, Oh, I like your values, but yeah. are, are these really your values or do you like them? But it should be almost like an organ rejection, right? Where if that person's not aligned, the organization feels that they feel it and, and everyone can, you know, agree to move on in a, in a positive way. No doubt. Yeah. Very early on, Bob, we make it very clear and I'll communicate to all our climbers when, you know, and they're welcome because, you know, we don't, we don't onboard, we welcome. I, I think there's a distinct difference and I will, I'll very clearly share with them. I'm like, if kindness and respect is important to you, then you'll lean into the culture as much as, as hard as we work to articulate how we're going to build it together. And uh, we often share that they learn very quickly. You have one day to be new because after on day two, you're not new anymore. You've experienced a lot. You've lived a lot before this. Uh, you're here to make us better. And you, know, you said something while ago about consistency. I also build another very important word into that in my messaging and that, hey, we're consistently imperfect. And you're here to help correct us when we digress. I'm going to extend right. you the same courtesy. Yeah. I, you know, we, we had a situation recently where, you know, someone sort of in, in implied that, um, you know, we didn't in, in something, we didn't take feedback very well. And I actually think we are over the top taking feedback as an organization. We collect it, we use it, report back on it. This person just didn't like the answers that they, <laughs> that they were getting, mm -hmm. um, which was they wanted a lot of things about the organization to change for their situation when those are the things that when 99% of the other people didn't feel that way. And it was hard to sort of make that point and get it to sink in, which is like, you know what, this probably is not the right place for you. We hear the feedback. We're just, these things aren't going to change <laughs> because they're, they're core to our business and they're core to what other people like. So it's, it's really hard for people sometimes to step back and say, and realize when, when that's not the right choice for them. And that's what makes leadership such a hard game. Uh, I know you see this, Bob, in that your people will ask you for, hey, more transparency, more communication, more, more, more. 
And we work very hard to do that. And, you know, often you do your best to try to deliver on what your people need. And, you know, you work hard to over communicate. And yet a third of the people will either read your email or, or watch, you know, something you sent out. And in a sense, you, you just have to develop, like you have to develop that, that thick skin <laughs> yeah. and say like, hey, that's just part of the game. And I'm going to have to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and, right. you know, reminding people. And if anyone thinks that you can say something once and be no, done and over with and just seven don't time get rule. into leadership. Yeah. yeah. It's like you're better suited for something else. But there's a difference between not listening to feedback and then the person not taking that. Like, for instance, we've, we're a remote company. Um, we've always been remote. You know, if someone comes in and, and we have that discussion and then they decide it's not for them and they say, we really should open offices. I think people want offices. The truth is they are really advocating... <laughs> their own position. And to say to them, look, I hear you. I hear the feedback. This is not something that we are going to do. So if that's something that's really important to you, then you may want to think about a place that that has that. There's a difference between ignoring feedback and people not liking the feedback on the feedback, which I think is leadership. And honestly, I, I actually think, I think if you're, as you said, if you're running a, a good culture that's differentiated, that has a point of view, there are a lot of things where you're going to say, we're just not going to do that. and that's okay. That's, that's part of the courtesy and respect. Uh, you yeah. make those boundaries clear in the beginning, then people can make that choice and decide, Hey, I do or don't want to be a part of this. And if you do, then wonderful. We expect you to lean in. If you don't, that's okay too. That's better for both of us. Yeah. And you had a metaphor for this. I, this is what I want to ask you. So I'd love to hear, uh, tell me about sort of the climbers, you know, where that came from. Also a little bit about, we haven't established what, what populist group does kind of your climbers. And then you also talked about when the paths diverge, right. And, and I, you know, your version of when it's time for them to climb a different mountain. So I'd love to hear your, your take on all of that. Yeah. Some great, uh, a lot of great questions packed into that, Bob. So I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> pick them off a little bit of time. Yeah. yeah. I'll take a little bit of time. Um, I still, I worked for Disney before I went in the army and I still remember the essence of what it meant to be a cast member. Yeah. That's what they call their employees. Yeah. I was in the army and to this day, I still remember the essence of what it meant to be a soldier. Well, about, you know, six years in after I got it through that first era, the challenge that I went through with my partners, I now had full control per se of the direction of the culture. And the word employee just never connected with me. It doesn't mean anything. And, you know, I have my Bible row. I talk about the collection of books that I have. I'd read a book that, you know, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish. Yeah. And in that, he talks about the power of connecting your organization to a theme. And I love the mountains. I remember to the, to the day when I specifically fell in love with the mountains. Yeah. So, I started, I built in a climbing theme into everything that my organization was doing uh, slowly. And I started tying a vernacular to it. I started calling my employees climbers. I gave them all a climber number based on when they come in. Anyone that gets selected to come into our organization, the first day of their welcome, they're given a climber number so that they'll know, they know where they were. And I often use the mountain metaphor because I believe at my core that you know, we're all climbing a mountain. You know, there's a place that we imagine that looks and feels better than where we are today. And it's just always connected with me that 
I fueled my passion for the mountains. And just over the years, I've built a very intentional vernacular about around that climbing theme into my organization's culture. And it's helped us connect to that identity that I've worked really hard to build into our culture. And it's pretty unique in that uh, for us and that for someone to come into our, if someone comes into our organization, spends a day, they're going to hear all kinds of vernacular. They're like, okay, what the heck does that mean? But we all speak that language. So we know what it means. Interesting. So, so everyone gets a new number, uh, even if someone, no one takes an old number, right? So everyone no, has a unique number. Yeah. No one takes an old number, you know, over time. Retired we've had climbers. A, that's it. Uh, as climbers, we've had quite a few climbers that have at a certain point in their climb, they said, you know what? I want to go try something else. I think you and I philosophically aligned that, Hey, yep. look, that's great. We'll support you. They've gone, many have come back. So we have quite a few that have two climber numbers. We give a new one when they come back. Oh, they don't get their retired one? They get to keep it, but they're <laughs> interesting. It's a symbol that, you know, because there's a story behind it, right? And we, we celebrate that story. And I think that was one of the other questions. Uh, one of the chapters that, that I have in the book, one of the lessons is around me climbing Mount Rainier. And the lesson in that chapter is, you know, not everyone will summit. And I wrote that because I think often as a leader entrepreneur, we have this, in a lot of organizations, there's a cradle to grave mentality. It's like, hey, when someone starts with you, yeah. if they don't stay with you, then there's obviously something wrong with them. And it's like, no, that's, uh, that's not fair. If they were a great enough person to be a part of your organization, then support them as they go become a great organization somewhere else. And I had to get over that nonsense myself. And uh, yeah. that's why I wrote that chapter. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Let's switch gears for a minute because we were talking about values and sort of your word and and you have a, an amazing uh, story about this uh, related to your father and a, and a promise that you kept to him. Could you tell that story? Because uh, I've read it and I've heard you tell it and, and it's such a great story. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's, it's requested quite often, Bob. Had a good ending too. Yeah. 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 I was on a business trip. It was before I started my company. I was on a business trip to Vancouver, British Columbia. And, uh, it was in 1998. My sister tracks me down and she says, Hey, Bobby, you got to come home. And uh, my heart just dropped. I, I knew what the call was about. You know, my dad was in a, 
18-month battle with tuberculosis, and we all knew the end was near. And so it was late on a Tuesday night, and I, I coincidentally had a trip scheduled to go to Colorado Springs to a wedding that Thursday. And so I tell my sister, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll look into changing my plans. I'll give you a shot tomorrow. I'll let you know when I'm going to be home. And the next morning on Wednesday before I started shifting my plans around, I decided to call my dad. And, you know, I check in on him in the hospital and he reassures me he's okay. And I said, hey, you know, Bobby, I'm going to come home. I'll be there. I should be there later tonight once I figure out my plans. And he gives me this pregnant pause, Bob. He was the king of silence. And he usually gave me a silence when I was about to make a choice that he disagreed with. <laughs> and so I was confused. And he, he, then he, you know, after a silence, he says, you know, son, don't you have a wedding to go to in Colorado Springs this weekend? And I said, yeah, dad, but my friend knows how sick you are. He'll totally understand. I'll be there later tonight. Another pregnant pause. Then he asked me, did you give me your word? And I knew I was in for it, Bob. And I said, yes, Papi, I did. He goes, well, then you have to be there. I said, don't change your plans. As a matter of fact, if you change your plans and come see me in the hospital, I'm not letting you in the room. And, you know, I jokingly called my dad the Mexican John Wayne. There's no way he would have let me in that hospital room. Like <laughs> Most of his life, his word was the only thing of value that he ever had. Uh, so I reluctantly kept my plans. I go to Colorado Springs that next day. And I've taken, I've taken thousands of flights in my life, Bob, but I, and I don't remember the last one I took, yeah. but I remember everything about that one. Cause I knew that I just made the biggest mistake of my life. And I'm thinking, Hey, if my dad doesn't make this, I'll never forgive myself. And so I get to the wedding, I check in on him and he reassures me he's okay. And I had already had plans to go see him that Sunday and spend the week with him. Well, make a long story short, he, I get there on Sunday, I, I go to the wedding, and on Sunday, I walk in the hospital room, and man, this giant gorilla just jumped off my back, because I, you know, he was still, he was good, I got to spend that whole next week with him, and he was a magnificent storyteller, and so every chance he got, I, I'd ask him to tell me a story, but this time, I, I had a new story to tell him, and you know, that Thursday night, that I got to Colorado Springs after I checked in on him, I went back and I'm, you know, having a beer with a good buddy checking in and up walks this gray eyed Norwegian girl that, I mean, she just made me feel like a little nervous kid. And all I remember is my buddy saying, Hey Bobby, this is Rosalind. And, uh, you know, I'm telling my dad all about this girl and I'd never talked to him about a girl before Bob. And I'm begging him to hold on. Unfortunately, he didn't make it. Three weeks later, he passed, and you know. But three years later, I married that girl. And the lesson in that story, you know, as I unpack it with more detail in the book, was: Hey, always choose the hardest right over the easiest wrong, because when you do that, life has a way of rewarding you in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. Yeah, I just <laughs> I can't imagine that that decision and that outcome, but. Yeah, you got to you got to just put faith in and that was his value set and that was the clear value lane for him, right? And he just wasn't going to have it any other way. And you know, and often in our, you know, both our leadership and entrepreneurial journey, you know, we're faced with these choices where like we know in our heart that we have to do something and we often 
aren't willing to choose that hardest ride over the easiest wrong, sometimes for economic reasons, sometimes for selfish reasons or whatever. And uh, you can't do that. Not if you want to build something meaningful. There's always a reward for it. Look, and there's, it's a really good reminder, I think, for everyone, you know, right now where we are in the world and that there's short-term decisions with long-term implications. And I mean, I, I've shared with my team and inside my team, I, I, I think for most leaders, employees, companies, this time period will be a defining moment and people mm-hmm. will look back on how they behaved. It's easy to behave well during the, <laughs> during the easy choices, right? Or the good times or the easy choices like those are the easy choices. I, I think how people made made decisions and, and what they put as their hierarchy of values now is is, is going to have a long history with with customers and employees and and people in their ecosystem. I mean, to say we're going through a major reset right now would be a massive understatement. I mean, yeah. this pandemic's been the great equalizer. Uh, it's forcing everybody to just change the game and. Well, I believe there's going to be three phases that we go through here. And I think a lot of organizations are very intentionally talking about two of those. You know, I think there's a survive piece like, man, we just need to make it through this time. And then there's a recover portion. And that is, hey, how are things going to change? Well, I think the stronger, more intentional leaders are also looking at the third, more important part is the reframe. So how are we going to reframe everything that's happening here and that's different from the recovery to make those long-term changes down the line that I think are going to be even more impactful for the way that everybody changes their behaviors and you know all this stuff we're struggling with right now, there's a gift coming. We just need to start mining for it now. That's the essence of that third part. And it's uh, easier said than done, but I, I think a lot of leaders may be unintentionally overlooking that part right now. And I would encourage them to hey, build that into your, your, your lens. You need to start thinking about that. Look, your, your book, The Gift of Struggle, should be flying off bookshelves right now if they, <laughs> if they, were, if they were open uh, to fly off of. So, I mean, the foundation of your whole leadership philosophy is that, is that struggle is, is essential to learning. So, help people make sense of, of how they're going to come out of this better and, and maybe like one or two of your moments of struggle that, that sort of were breakthroughs for you. Because I, I think a lot of people will clarify their purpose through a lot of pain now. It's very hard to see the silver lining in the middle of it. But this, this is almost a, a massive lab experiment in your whole, in your whole philosophy. So uh, this is your time. Let, let's hear it. Yeah. Well, you know, Bob, the title's definitely been amplified, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, once people start traveling again, you know, it, it was doing really well in the airports and yeah, hopefully it'll, it'll continue. But I'm just going to share the essence of what I think a story that I think brings it to life. You know, Bob, it's at the bus story in that you know, when I was 17, you know, my brother Ed and I, we were on a return trip home from a basketball game and everybody unloaded off the bus except for my brother when we stopped for dinner my brother and I, and, you know, at that point in time, we didn't have the means to afford dinner and play sports. Well, a few moments after the team unloaded, this gentleman steps on board the bus. And as he's walking towards the back, he teased me a little bit because Ed had outscored me that night. And then he said something to me that I'll always remember. He says, Bobby, it would make me very happy if you would allow me to buy you boys dinner so that you can join the rest of the team. Nobody has to know. All you have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid, just like you on this bus. And 
I'll always remember how I felt in that moment. And at that point, my story, Bob, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. You know, it, was a, it was a year after that that I joined the army, but all I knew is that I wanted my future to look different than my past. But I remember stepping off that bus, and although I had no idea what I was going to do, I knew why. I would somehow, some way, create something to pay forward that kind act to another kid like me who was born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. But there was a backstory to it too that I think is really relevant to this time and that you know, the gentleman that stepped on board the bus, he was a really successful businessman in the community. And the narrative that I told was that people like him, they don't see kids like me. And with one small act of kindness, not only did he show me that I was wrong, but he taught me that one of the most important parts of leadership is seeing and encouraging potential. That was the very first time in my life that I felt seen. And so I share that because like, I wanted off that bus more than anything. And more important, I needed the hope that I had yet to have that I would someday somehow check the ultimate box. And that is, hey, will my story matter? And you know, when you and I, when we talk about purpose, as we all try to identify our purpose, it's forged through a moment of struggle that we experienced where someone saw us, where someone gave us hope, where someone helped us forge an identity that would give us the courage and encouragement to someday do it for someone else. And like that moment is, I believe, happening for a lot of people right now. How am I going to reframe this experience so that the next few chapters of my life, I can somehow do what I need to do to check that box and answer that ultimate question is, hey, will my story matter? Yeah. It always comes through a source of struggle that caused us a lot of pain inside. Yeah, I mean, I you and I probably have a lot of friends in similar, the, the sort of midlife phase or the midlife crisis phase. And you'll talk to a lot of them and they're, they're not happy and they don't like what they do, but it's comfortable <laughs> and they're paid really well. And they're, they're at the top of one of those mountains. Right. And, and a lot of times if you're not knocked off that mountain, you don't ever make that change. And so I, I think we're going to see a lot of people for their choice or, or, or not reevaluate what it is they want, the impact they want to make and, and, may come out of this doing very different things or with very different missions. And you know, one of the questions that you ask, that's very embedded in all the work that you do, Bob, is you're real intentional about signaling to, you know, your audience and through the work you do, like, what are your limits? And right now they're being tested and leaders all over the world are facing that question. And at the heart of that, is going to be a struggle that is going to teach them something. Well, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to utilize that to identify how it's going to make you a better leader so that you can see others? And that's part of the reframe part that I experience. Like lean into it, mind for what this time is teaching you so that you can make the next two or three chapters of your life or hopefully more even better. So, I know we've also, you mentioned this before, we talked a lot about family. Uh, family is very important to you, three kids, and I think we share a similar philosophy, but you, you've been pretty intentional in 
in, in literally and figuratively uh, encouraging your kids to, to go off the beaten path, particularly, <laughs> I think, as you go hiking. So yeah. it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I had this question for us to talk about when we knew we booked this a while ago. And it was kind of like, how does that, I'll ask it how I was going to ask it, but then you'll see why you, there's some changes. But how does that manifest itself for your family and thinking about it in a world where so many kids live these structured, scheduled lives pre-COVID? Uh, <laughs> because it yeah. is interesting now that I think people are getting a look at what life might look like without all this structure and they're, they're liking it. Yeah. Well, what a gift, not to downplay it, but what a yeah. gift. We've given our kids a gift of boredom and the gift of having to figure it out. And yeah, I mean, just the gift of having dinner together every night. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're on 40, 40 in a row. And I, and I've, yeah. you know, I've said, I'm not, I'm just not sure that'll ever happen again. <laughs> I mean, it'd be great, but I, I given their ages and it's hard to see when we may have that opportunity again. Yeah, that's right. But Bob, I'll answer your question uh, in a couple of ways. You know, if you asked, you know, my 11 year old right now, if you asked him, Hey, what's your dad's job? He'll look at you and he'll say to prepare me for the path, not to prepare the path for me. <laughs> Love that quote. Yeah. And then if you asked him another question said, what's your dad going to do when you're 18? He'll look at you and say, he's going to break my plate and he's going to burn my bed. And I'm sending him those signals early. And one of the things I've never done with my kids is uh, I don't ask them what they want to do. I ask them, who do you want to be when you grow up? And over time, I've taught them you know, our family values, you know, like I taught them to hate kindness and I want to be generous. I want to be helpful. I want to be a giver. I want to go off the beaten path, which, you know, is synonymous with courage and taking a risk. And so I'm teaching them those things through the questions and the stories that I'm telling them. But the essence of, of your question, and that is, you know, I think above all, you and I just want to be an all pro dad. And I talk about how I, when I take my kids hiking, I'll encourage them at a certain point. It's like, Hey, let's go off the path. And I want to give them a balanced view of, Hey, it's okay to follow where others have gone, but it's not okay if you don't follow your curiosity and bend a few rules here and there. And so I'm also teaching them another one of dad's principles and that, Hey, I think rules suck. Let's not break the law, but let's bend the rules. Unless they're my rules. You're potentially in some dangerous, you know, territory there. Don't break the rules unless they're my rules. Yeah, they've they've used it against me a few times. That's what yeah. kids do. They test those boundaries. All right. So la last question for you, and uh, I'm sure you have a bunch that here that you'd be happy to share. But we'll we'll go with your your greatest hits. But what's a personal and professional mistake that you've made? And I know for some people it's singular. For more people, uh -huh. maybe there's even a theme or it's repeated. But but that you've learned the most from in your career. Uh, yeah, I, I alluded to it earlier. Um, not telling that bus story yeah. was hands down in the top three biggest mistakes I, I've made in both my leadership, my personal, my entrepreneurial journey. You know, we heal through story and me not having the courage to tell that story. I did my organization a great disservice for the first 10 years. And that I would rank that as hands down one of the top. I mean, my book is laced with hundreds of mistakes that I made throughout my entrepreneurial journey, but that one there ranks near the top in my overall personal and professional life because there's so many signals that I can send to other people who were carrying a similar struggle than I was that, you know, that story can help. And 
That's why I made lesson number one, tell your story. People need to hear it. Where can people learn more about you, your company, and your work? They can follow me on LinkedIn. I have a very active blog series there where I am either on bobby-herrera.com where they can follow my Students of Struggle series. I'm about to start a new video Q&A series around big leadership questions that I'm consistently getting. Uh, those are probably the two best ways to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for sharing your story with us. I could, I'm glad we got to do this. I could listen to, <laughs> to your stories all, all day long. I'm not sure where the time even, even went, but uh, you're an incredible inspiration to other leaders and, and people building organizations. And I hope people learn a lot from hearing your story. Hey, well, God bless your mission, Bob, and uh, I enjoy your work. You're doing great work for a lot of people and big student of your Friday forward. So keep giving. You're a, you're a phenomenal example of leadership. So thank you. Thanks. I, I have a feeling you will, you'll like uh, tomorrow's. It's up your alley. I look forward to it. All right. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Bobby and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode on the Elevate podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is click on the library icon, choose Elevate, and you can scroll down to leave a rating or review. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.